you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. We're going to conclude our series on the parables. And as you turn there, I just want to just say how proud I am of Clover Hill and being able to be a part of it. We started a Pray 21 two weeks ago now, and usually kind of the habit is it'll start strong and kind of die. I would just want to know it's been building every night, day. In fact, this last week was the highest attendance we've had. Is, uh, right at 70 people came at, at 7 o'clock to pray. And there's just been a spirit of unity, just powerful prayer time. And there's one more week, seven more days, every Monday through Saturday and Sunday, uh, even on Sunday, from 7 to 8 if you can make it. If you can just come one day, two days, I'm still believing for 120 on at least one day. So if you would, if you, you want to make that a reality, let's, let's pick a day right now. And we could all come to one day. And the, no, just try to, just if you could do it, it's just a great time, great time to start your day. If you can't be here from 7 to 8, we have Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday at 6 a.m. And those are powerful, great time. You'll be glad that you came. Also, I wanted to tell you, because of your generosity, this week we were able to to uh, give a vulnerable family in our community. They moved into an apartment, and we were able to furnish their entire apartment. So we're just grateful for that. Three little kids. One kid has been sleeping on the floor now forever, and he couldn't believe he's got his own bed. And it's just because of your generosity and your faithfulness and giving. You don't give to the church. You give through the church. The more you give, the more we'll give away. And so I want to encourage you with that. And then one more thing, I mean, none of the, they're, they're all very important, but last week at Beaumont, you know, we go every Sunday night, a group of our team goes to minister to the kids at the, Powhatan, the Beaumont Correctional Facility. Eight of them gave their life to Jesus last week. To God be the glory. So we, we thank God for that. Uh, we're talking today about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and if you, you think of Pharisee, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? Usually it's a negative connotation. Usually it's you don't want to be a Pharisee. And, and, and because they, they really have a bad rap, and rightfully so, and we're going to talk about it. But back in Jesus' day, they were at the top of the spiritual food chain. They were recognized as the spiritual leaders and authority of that time. They, the, the word Pharisee means set apart. So they, they'd even taken it. They were set apart from the ordinary and the common, and they were... They were trying to be spiritual and holy. And their motives were pure. They, they hated the decline of religion amongst the Jewish people. They hated the fact that they, they had felt like their people had rejected God. And so they wanted to, to help turn their people back to the law and back to, to, to what they thought was the heart of God. So they were very passionate and zealous and not only keeping the Old Testament law, but adding to the law. And and, and, and putting on stipulation after stipulation. But the Pharisees were Christ's greatest adversary. When he walked on the earth, he rebuked, rebuked them constantly. I mean, for everybody he accepted. And for these Pharisees, he rebuked. In fact, one of the reasons he told parables was for the Pharisees. He didn't tell them just because they were great stories and they were able to illustrate truth. And he was a great storyteller. No, he told them, here's, here's, here's what he said. And let me give you the context. This is why I use parables. The context is, if you look at Matthew 13 and chapter 12, also Jesus had just healed a, a demon-possessed man. And, and the people, the people were saying, man, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And the Pharisees were so jealous. And their eyes had become 
so, their vision so blurred and their ears so deaf and their hearts had become so cold. There's no way that a, that a man from a, from, a, from a carpenter's home could be the Messiah. There's no way this guy that doesn't keep the law or adhere to the, to the Jewish tenets of faith down to the, to the smallest uh, jot. There is no way. And so Jesus told these parables for they look, but they don't really see. He's talking to the Pharisees. They hear, but they don't understand. And this fulfills the prophecy of what Isaiah said. When you hear what I say, you will not understand. And when you see what I do, you'll not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened. But we, we're expecting Jesus in another way. This is not what our minds had conceived. This is not what we understood him to be like. Therefore, I'm going to close my eyes to him. I'm going to shut my ears to him. I'm going to harden my heart toward him. I'm not going to be able to hear our see. And so their eyes and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. And so what Jesus is saying, after this demoniac deliverance, I'm going to make the truth hard for them to see. For those that are hungry, for those that are seeking, for those that, that come to me like childlike faith, the the parables are, are going gonna, gonna, to gonna make the truth come alive. For those that have rejected me, hearts have become hard. The parables are going to hide the truth from them. And so Jesus went on to tell 60-something parables over the course of his ministry in, in one sense to hide the truth from, from these Pharisees. Well, what was the big deal with the Pharisees? Why were they such a problem to God? Let me give you a few reasons. One, they made it hard for people to come to God. Write that down, will you? They made it hard for people to come to God. Here's what Jesus said concerning them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. They built, they built fences and, and made it difficult and made it challenging and made it hard for people to enter the kingdom of God. Anybody been watching Ninja Warrior lately? It's a show on TV where, where they put up this obstacle course and they're trying to find the, the most athletic and the greatest, the greatest guy or gal. And so you got to jump over water and run through tires and run up a wall and ring a bell and, and climb all these. You got to use your body weight to like, you ought to watch it. It's, you get kind of addicted to it. And you get you to, to get up all these things. What the goal is, we're going to weed everybody out, and we're only going to let the strong survive. And they're going to be the ultimate ninja warrior. And that's what the Pharisees are like. We're going to make this obstacle course so hard, so challenging. We're going we're gonna to get rid of all the riffraff. We're going to get rid of all the less committed and the less spiritual. And we're going to make them prove it by the way that they adhere to Old Testament law. And if they can't do it, they're out. They're, they're not the ultimate. They, they're not even going to be able to compete. Here's one of their laws that they put in place. You couldn't eat meat unless you washed your hands. And we understand that. That's fine. Okay, I'll wash my hands before eating meat. But you just couldn't wash your hands any old way. You had to dip them in the basin. You had to pull them out, get the, get the soap or whatever it was. You could not wash with an open hand. That is sin. That is against God. You had to wash with a closed fist. You'd wash one hand, turn it over, wash the other hand. Dip them back in. You had to do it. This was the regiment. They would watch over. They would make sure you were washing your hands right. 
closed fist, not open hand, closed fist, and then you'd have to do the other one. They just kept adding to the law. They wanted to thin the herd. They wanted, they wanted to, to thin the crowd. And it was so in opposition to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to thin the herd. He came to expand the kingdom. He didn't want to exclude people. He wanted to in, include people. Jesus came for whosoever will. He came for the woman at the well who had five husbands and the man she wasn't living with uh, wasn't, the sixth guy she wasn't her husband, she, she was living with him. And the Pharisees would go, you're out, you're no good. Jesus said, hey, let's talk about this. You're not satisfied, obviously. There's a deep need that's not getting met. Let me try to fill it. Let me give you some water. Will you never thirst again? The, 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 Jesus came for the lady caught in adultery. Oh, where are your, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? Where are they? Where are the rock throwers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus came for the demoniac. There's a great story in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is preaching to the crowds. Thousands have come. And, and, and he's wore out and he's tired. And he, and he gets to a place where he can finally rest. And it, it, it appears the Spirit of God speaks to him. And so he gets his disciples and says, come on, guys. We got to cross the lake. There's something on the other side for us God wants us to do. They get in a boat eight and a half miles across the Sea of Galilee. In the middle of the lake, they, they face a storm that, that looks like it's going to kill them and destroy them. They finally get to the other side, and they're met by a demoniac, a guy that is demon-possessed, a guy that in the eyes of the culture and society has no value, has no worth, has, is really an outcast. He runs through the graveyard screaming and cutting himself, and Jesus in his grace and in his goodness, this is who he came for. He sits with him, he ministers to him, and he delivers him from the demoniac. This man is clothed and in his right mind. Here's the amazing thing to me. He immediately gets back in the boat, goes another eight and a half miles, back to where he was, to what he was doing. Jesus, for one dude that, that the society said is useless, put him in prison, drug him, chain him, keep him by himself, for one guy, Jesus went eight and a half miles, fought a storm, wore out, exhausted, ministered to him, delivered him, got back in the boat, and went to the other side. Because Jesus didn't come to exclude. He came to expand. He, he came. Everything about Jesus invited people to him. From, from his coming from heaven down to an earth as a man, to being born in a crowded inn amongst the animals, from, from dying on a cross between two thieves, from being the son of a blue-collar cabinet maker, from, from choosing 12 un, the most unlikely disciples that, that anyone would choose, from, from when he died, the temple. You remember the curtain in the temple that was used to separate the holy place from the holy of holies? It was there to symbolize that God was holy and man was not. And nobody could enter. Nobody could get to God. There only one person, the priest, could go one time a year. And even when he went on the Day of Atonement, they wrapped a cord around his waist so just in case he died in God's presence, they would pull him out. But on the day that Jesus died, the veil was rent from top to bottom, torn in half. The very thing that symbolized a distance and a separation from God now symbolized access into his presence. God came. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one was tempted in every way we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, we can approach the throne room of grace with confidence that we might find mercy and help in time of our need. The Pharisees built walls to keep people out. You got to do it this way. You, you got to 
oh, open hand, you're out. You got you to do everything the way we've prescribed and we've ordained. And Jesus said, I've come to remove those walls. I've come to, I've come to, get, I've come to allow people access into my presence and, 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 and into, into a life with me. Here's another thing they did. Oh, here, here's, what, here's what they would say. This is so powerful, Matthew 12, 20. They would say, you're a bruised reed, he will not break. This is the words of Jesus. They would have cast that, you got baggage, you, you're beat up, you don't feel like you deserve to be here today. There are some that the world has so beat up, you feel less than, you feel inadequate. During worship, you really struggled because you thought in your mind, I don't deserve to be here, I've done too much wrong. You're a, you would what's be called a bruised reed. They, the Pharisees would break you. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to break you, I come to heal you. I've come to restore you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a smoldering wick, you've come today and you're barely holding on to your faith. You've had some oppositions and some challenges and difficulties. And you just feel like, I mean, you're just hanging by the threads. The Pharisee would say, where's your commitment? Where's your zeal? Jesus said, I didn't come to snuff you out. I came to fan you into flame. I've come to breathe on you. I've come to help you. You're the very person I've come through for. I've come for the broken and the bruised and the battered. I've come for the questioning and the doubting and the, and the displaced. I want to help you. I want to come alongside you. And it's so, it's so messed with the Pharisee's head. It's so, it's so, no, you can't be a savior like that. They're not good enough. They've not kept the law enough. Here's another thing. Tradition for the Pharisees trumped ministry. Probably the thing that got Jesus in more trouble with the Pharisees was what he did on the Sabbath. Here's their idea of the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment. It's a big deal. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It goes on to say in Exodus 20 that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. But when Jesus came, he said, hey, the Sabbath is not meant for God. It's meant for you. I've created it so that you can be refreshed. Holy doesn't mean you can't have any fun. It means different than. It means set apart. So, so the Sabbath is supposed to be different from every other day. It's supposed to be, it's not for me, it's for you. It's to get revived and rejuvenated and get ready for the things that you have to do the other six days. Well, the Pharisees just took it to a whole nother level. And so they said, okay, God said you can't work. Let us define work. And so they put together a list of 39 unallowable activities. And on that list were things like sowing, not not sowing a needle, but, but sowing seed, threshing, tanning, uh, not, not laying in a sun bed, but, but, you know, think back in Old Testament, tanning a hide, I guess, is what they're talking about. Right, here's what, you couldn't write two or more letters. If you wrote one, you're okay. But two was the limit, because that equaled work. You couldn't put out a fire. So your house is on fire, God bless you, you're on your own, buddy, you just, just run. You couldn't kindle a fire. You couldn't, you couldn't put the finishing touches on a project. So Saturday afternoon, you've been working on a sports swing that you were going to use for Sunday to just really rat, relax, get a glass of sweet tea, and just enjoy yourself. But darkness caught you, and there's just two pieces left to put on. You're out of luck, man. You've got to wait till Monday. You can't turn those two screws because that would be work. You could visit neighbors, but only if it was in walking distance. So they put, they put all these rules and these stipulations, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he's walking through this wheat field. 
And, and, and the Pharisees, they're watching his every move, and they hate him anyway. And, and they're hungry. Him and his disciples are hungry, but it's the Sabbath. But he doesn't care. He grabs a, 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 what is a wheat thing? He just grabs it. I don't know, whatever it's called. And he grabs a thing, and he, and he pulls off the junk, and it's called threshing. And so he threshes on the Sabbath, and he's left with the kernels, and he pops them in his mouth, and he hands them out, and they, they fill their bellies. And the, the Pharisees go nuts. You worked on the Sabbath. That's diabolical. That's unacceptable. That's unallowed. And so from that point on, they tried to catch him, trap him. Find him. They, were so, they were so tradition, so trumped ministry that Jesus goes to a, to a temple on a Sunday. And, and the Pharisees are there. They're sitting on the back row. They're standing up against the wall, proud, arrogant. We're going to get him this time. He's going to say something. He's going to do something. There's a guy in the crowd that has a shriveled arm. That's all it says. Deformed, messed up, can't use it. And Jesus, knowing who's there, I mean, he just picks a fight. He could have done it later. He could have waited till the Pharisees were gone. He could have done it in private. But this is, this is what he says. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or destroy it? And I think he just looked at all those Pharisees. And then he said, young man, I see you've come in here with that shriveled hand. Stand up and come here. In the name of Jesus, be healed. It was strengthened. It was made whole. It was made right. And the air is sucked out of the room. Not because of a healing, but because he did it on the Sabbath. Their their, their tradition, they would rather him keep a law than heal somebody. I remember when we first got it started as a church almost 20 years ago we were you know just a small group of people and and a part of those 15 people was Mike Atkinson Mike and Pat Atkinson and he was a uh, he was 70 at the time I was 27 he was a retired marine officer and I mean he was a he was a hero he was a patriot he was a man's man big loud opinionated leaders leader I mean, it very, very intimidating to me, to say the least. And he was one of our first elders. He come, came on the leadership team and, and was helping us. And, and Mike was very traditional. I mean, came from a tradition of a lot of hymns and, and a lot of, of, of ceremony in church, and a lot of, you know, reverence and respect. And, and just, the, I mean, he just came with that tradition and we get in the mix, and we're growing, and, and God's blessing, and, and God's got that little church of 11 up to 400 now, and, and we're, we're, we're singing these worship songs that he does not like. We're loud. We're using drums. We got three or four guitars on the band, but there, we got all these young people and young families, and people are getting saved every week, and, and, and he comes to me, and, and I knew, I knew he didn't like, well, I knew he didn't like our music. He didn't like our singing. He could have made life so difficult for me. He could have. He had so much influence at that time. He had the power to split the church. He could have done it. He had that kind of influence. But in Mike Atkinson's eyes, ministry trumped tradition. It wasn't like a Pharisee. He came to me, Stan, he said, Stan, you know I don't like this music. You know I think it's too loud. You know I think we sing too long. With tears coming down his eyes, but he said, I love the young people that are getting saved. And this 74-year-old man by then, I love what God is doing in our midst. And I love, I love the presence of Jesus in this house. Don't stop what you're doing. Turn it up. Sing it loud. Let's go after God together. That was a guy 
That was a guy that said, I'm not going to allow my tradition to trump ministry. The Pharisees, we're not doing that. Man, we got to stay stuck into what we've been doing because we've always done it. Listen to me, don't be a Pharisee. Don't let your tradition trump what God wants to do in the hearts and the lives of other people. There are churches all over this nation that are so steeped in in tradition that they're dying. I I mean, they're just a few few 20 people away from being non-existent because there's no life and there's no energy. There's no youth because they're so bound in their tradition. And Jesus said, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come to uphold some tradition. I came to minister to the hearts of people and the lives of people. Here, here's, here's the last thing and maybe the most important thing. They trusted in their own righteousness. They, they thought they could be good enough. Here, here's, now we're finally to the parable. You said, I thought you were going to preach on that. I have been, but now let's read it. To some who were confident in their own righteousness, their own right standing with God. I've done this. I've accomplished this. I've kept every letter of the law. I've tithed. I've, I've done. I'm looking down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. We've talked a little bit about a Pharisee. And the other a tax collector. I'll talk about him in a minute. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Didn't even... He might have been thinking he was talking to God, but he was talking about himself. Uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like robbers or evildoers. I'm not, I've never cheated on my wife. I'm not even like that evil tax collector over there. In fact, I fast twice a week. The law said you had to fast once a year. I, I do it twice a week, and I get a tenth of all I get. He, here's, here's how he depended or trusted in his own righteousness. It was a righteousness by comparison. I'm going to hold up the law, and because I'm pretty good at it, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, and I know I don't hit it right on everything, but I, but I know that I'm better than most, then I'm going to be okay. It's here. I try to ask, Lord, help me to illustrate this, and just consider a, there's a coach in a small farming community that has a basketball team, and his center is six foot tall. And, and I don't know if you don't know anything, about, that's not very big. But in a small community, not a lot of kids to pick from. He's one of the biggest kids. And he has a great junior year. He, he, rebound, he out-rebounds everybody. He outscores everybody. He's, he's pretty good in that league. And so his senior year, he goes, oh, I don't need to go to class. I don't need to work hard in my studies because I'm going to the NBA. And I'm going to be an NBA center. And I'm going to make millions of dollars. And I'm going to be okay. So I'm just going to do my own thing. And because the coach loves him, he brings a special tape measure to him. And he says, pal, man, I love you, but you got to know something. You're six foot, and that's, you know, that's good. I'm 5'10", so he's a couple inches taller than me. But the average NBA center is 6'11", and some of them are 7'2". That means 14 inches taller than you. So you stand six foot, the next, that, that's how tall the next center is. I, I just... I just want you to realize that you're good and you're a great player and I don't want to kill your dreams, but you better have a backup plan. You better go to class. You better better work hard on those grades because if you get to the NBA, you are not going to be able to get a shot off. You're not going to be able to rebound. These guys outweigh you by 100 pounds. They're 14 inches taller than you. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're more athletic. 
And this guy, this coach says, take the tape measure, the special tape measure. And, and when you think, I don't have to do anything, I'm going to the NBA, I'm fine. I want you to pull this out to remember that there are guys so much taller and so much bigger than you. And that six-foot kid takes the tape measure and he goes to the elementary school. And he finds little Johnny that's three and a half foot tall. And he goes, you're that tall. But look how much better I am. I'm that tall. The God gave the law. You know why God gave the law? So that we would realize how short that we come from it. He, he gave the law as a tutor, as a mirror. We're supposed to use the law to be a reflection in our life, to say, I can't do that. I, what do you mean I can't even look lustfully at a woman? I can't do that on my own. What do you mean I got to love my enemies and pray for those who, who persecute me? I can't do that, God. What do you mean? The law was written to, to drive us to Christ. It was meant to cause us to know that we need a Savior, that we're not good enough, that we can't adhere to it. But what we do is we take the law and we find the next person shorter than us and we use it as, as a measurement tool rather than a mirror. And we say, well, I'm better than them, so I'm okay. And Jesus said, no, you're not okay. God said, you got to be holy just as I'm holy. You know what that means? You got to be perfect just as I'm perfect. And none of us can be perfect. And if we don't keep the whole law, if we break one point of the law, we break all of it. And you know what the punishment for breaking one part of the law is? If you want to live by the law, then you die by the law. If you break one part, you die. But Jesus knew, hey, they can't adhere to it. They can't keep it. They can't live up to it. So I'm going to be the curse for them. I'm going to die on a cross for their sin. I'm going to make way for them. I'm going to, I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the way that we're saved is not comparing ourselves to others, but by accepting the forgiveness and grace that only Jesus Christ can give. Here, here's the other thing. Not only a righteousness by comparison, but a righteousness by works. They, they, they thought, well, oh, let me give it to you. See, righteousness by comparison, that's a good verse. Righteousness by works. So I'm just going to work my way to heaven. I, I'm going to earn favor with God. I'm going to, and that's what works-based religion is. And, and, and every, the only difference between Christianity and every other religion out there is one's works-based and one's faith-based. I mean, you take the Muslim, you take, you take everything. It's all about works. It's I got to work my way to heaven. I got to do enough. Faith-based salvation is based on grace. For by grace are we saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And these Pharisees thought, well, if I just work harder, if I do better. And faith says, Jesus is the only one that can help me. Here, I, I read this story. I was preparing for this, for this sermon. And, and, and way back, right after World War I, Europe was so, uh, the bombings, the, most of the war was fought on their ground. And, and so it was a mess. And there were orphans and displaced families. And, and, and it was just a mess. And so the U.S., they set aside some money for the European government to start orphanages. And, and, and they would hire these European men and women to care for these displaced kids. And so uh, one particular day, this, this man comes in. He's probably only 30 years old, but he looks 60. He's hunched over. You can see his ribs. He's in terrible condition. He's got this four-year-old little girl with him. Again, you can malnourished. You can... Uh, 
pale, dark circles under her eyes, just really bad off. And, and, and he goes to this orphanage. I, I understand you taking kids. Will you please take care of my daughter? If you don't, she's going to die. And the orphanage said, we'd love to, but it's our policy that we only take in kids whose parents have died. This is your daughter? Yeah, we can't take her yet. We, we, are you telling me the only way, the dad said, you tell, the only way she can live, the only way you'll feed her, the only way you'll clothe her, the only way you'll care for her is if I die. That's right, sir, you're going to have to die, and, then, and then, then we can take care of her. And so with those words, he grabbed his little baby and four-year-old little girl. He drew her close. He hugged her. He kissed her on the cheek. He took his little girl's hand, and he took the hand of the worker behind the desk, and he put them together. He said, I can take care of that. And he went out, and he hung himself. And I thought, that's just what Jesus did for us. God the Father is up in heaven. We're without hope, without God in this world. And Jesus said, you telling me the only way they can live is if I go and die? And God said, that's right. It's the only way I can live. And so Jesus left his throne in heaven. He came to earth and he took my hand and he took the hand of God and he died on a cross and he connected them together. And that's the only way we're saved. It's not by works. It's not by comparison. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ. And the, and, and the, and the Bible goes on to say in this parable, but the tax collector stood at a distance And the tax collector was the exact opposite of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, again, he was kind of the top of the food chain in their eyes, the spiritual elite. The tax collector was at the bottom of the food chain. The tax collector was a Jewish man that was hired by the Roman government to extract taxes from Jewish people. So so they would bring him on and, and he would go, he would get a tax from his people that was unfair and unjust. And the Romans said, hey, we don't even care if you charge more. In fact, if you do, we'll protect you. So if you got to go collect the $10 tax, charge $15 and you can keep the $5. Just bring us the $10. So this guy was hated. He was despised. He was a liar. He was cheat. He was a cheat. He was everything that represented bad. And somehow he gets into the temple. Jewish law said he can't even go in the temple. Sneaks in through a back door, gets by when nobody's looking, but he won't even go to the front. He just stands at a distance. He's bruised. He's beat up. He's wealthy, but he's missing. There's something void in his life. He doesn't even know what he is. He comes in with so much baggage and so much uh, disgrace and so much shame. He wouldn't even look up to heaven but he just beat his breast and he cried out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We got two people, one a Pharisee. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And a tax collector, the the, the heathen of heathens, the bottom of the barrel. God, have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. I don't, I, I, I just throw myself at your mercy and at your grace and at your goodness. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, which man? The tax collector went home, other, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
I can do it on my own. I can, I can work this out by my good works. I, at least I'm better than. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The last week of this series, the parables, and I, I say this intentionally because I want you to self-identify today. It's the first step in salvation. Are you like the tax collector? You're a bruised reed. You got baggage. You, uh, you, you're apprehensive today, and you have been. Maybe you've come for weeks. Maybe this is your first time, but God can't accept me. I'm not good enough. None of us are good enough. We, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. None of us measure up. But you sit back there bruised. You sit back there a smoldering wick. I don't even know if I got faith to believe. I, I, man, I'm so discouraged right now. I don't, know, I don't even know what I can do. But I do know I got to have something. God's not going to break you. He's going to help you. God's not going to snuff you out. He's going to fan you into flame. If you're the tax collector today, you can leave justified. You can leave, you can leave just as if I've never sinned. You can leave under the mercy and the grace of God. Maybe you're like the Pharisee. Nobody, nobody plans to be the Pharisee. It's an accidental thing. It's, it's tradition. It's, it's how I grew up. But you, you've allowed your tradition to maybe trump ministry. Or you've allowed this idea that I, if I'm better than, then I'm okay. Or if I work hard enough, he'll have to accept me. That's, that's Pharisee. It's, it's Pharisee at its, at its best. And it is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's in direct opposite. If you could be saved by your works, then Christ died for nothing. For nothing. You tax collector God's here to give you mercy bruised, beat up baggage, he's here to forgive you and help you Pharisee on the outside, I got it all together what are you talking about, but I realize now after this word that I've my faith is based on something other than the, than the blood of Jesus Christ and, and today I need to get it right for those that will self identify for those that will believe in their heart that Jesus is the only way, that will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that will repent and turn from their sin, they'll receive mercy and grace and salvation. Why don't you stand to your feet with me, will you?